0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you are watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media and virtual production. Our next hour, our second hour, is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today, Rob Lewis from Calrec is going to be here to talk about the their Type R console. It's a really cool remote console. So this is a console that you, is designed for you to remote into. So it's really cool. He's already showed me a little bit of it. So um, we're really excited to have him, uh, and he'll be here for the second. Hour. so if you've got questions about the Calrec, uh, then go ahead and throw those into McConnell. If you've got general questions, of course you can throw them in any time, twenty uh, four seven. If you use the if you use askofficehours dot uh, or use this little QR code here, uh, you can um, jump into the uh, in, into a question. System that allows you to just ask them 24-7 during the show, after the show, before the show, all those things. Um, Or you can, of course, still use Makana and uh, vote on questions and chat with everybody else. Let's go ahead and jump into those questions. Mitch, what do we have?
1: Thank you, Alex. Uh, First in, Peter Moore from Auckland, New Zealand. Roland has released the Gaia 2 synth 13 years after the original Gaia released in 2010. Uh, Rachel does a great in-depth interview about a stunning performance showcasing it. What are your thoughts? Go, Jeff.
2: So I'm, you know, I understand synth, but I'm not a synth guy. I think if you are a synth person, uh, you really want to dive into this and take a look. It it seems to have amazing uh, features and control, and uh, I think if you're a synth person, after you take a look at these kind of review videos, you'll know whether the Gaia is for you. Um, But it certainly seems like uh, you know Roland is stepping up. But it's a you know you have to be a synth person to be really into this. Next question.
1: Next one in from John Pewitt in uh, Huntersville, North Carolina. A friend wanted to be able to record computer calls like Teams and Zoom, but needs a hardware solution. While my MixPre would work great for this, she needs a budget solution. What does the panel recommend?
3: Jesse? A very budget solution is to get something like a Zoom H1 with a, a 3.5 millimeter in and pull the headphone out from your computer and put it into the Zoom. This does not create a perfect solution, though, because this will only record the audio coming in from the other members of the team. If you need to have your voice also recorded, you'll need to do that on a separate channel. That's the most budget solution. You can get them for under $100. And I also recommend getting a headphone splitter so you can monitor the the conversation on headphones while the H1 records uh, in parallel. Bill? You
4: mentioned she needs a hardware solution. Just make sure that that's actually what you need. She needs something off uh, sync because it's so easy now to do audio calls using just a simple little tool like Audio Hijack. If you're um, literally looking for both video and audio, and she means audio calls in terms of the whole Zoom session, then QuickTime Pro will let you just grab screens and put them into a file there. So just make sure she really wants a solution separate on the outside for hardware. She may, and if so, that was good advice before, but that's the option. Courtney?
5: Well, you know, I always recommend, as far as recording uh, Zoom calls, because you can record the video and the audio, you can record them at 720p and it gets a good quality audio. These uh, game-type recorders, like this ClearClick one here for $119, Uh, you just route your HDMI through it, Uh, from your Zoom call and hit the record button and it records on a plugged-in USB thumb drive and so that way you have a complete recording of the video and the audio and later you can Pull the audio off if you want to or you could use both
0: and how do they get them if you're um, If you have a mic will it pick up that as well? I don't think it'll pick that up because it'll be a mix minus, right?
5: Uh, Yes, it does and it has a microphone input on it Uh, I'll see if I can, can quite see it there right at the top uh, in the right time, but you'd have to, to figure out something. how to get your
0: whatever you're doing. In
5: yeah, you'd have to plug that. a different microphone, like a lav microphone, into it or something if you you wanted to hear your side of the recording as well.
0: Yeah, one thing one thing to also think about is the potential of using something like so. A lot of these mics, the USB mics that you use, have a headphone out, and that will that headphone out there will have both your voice as well as the computer return. Oftentimes you have a way to mix that back and forth. Um, So grabbing those, that headphone out there and then putting it into even a little voice recorder uh, would get you, um, you know, would get you both um, you and the remote participant. Go ahead, Bill.
4: Along those lines, too, if you're using closed uh, headphones, you can put a little lavalier mic inside the headphone cup. And if you're monitoring both sides of the conversation, that and the little tiny uh, micro recorder will record that just fine. Not the world's best quality, but it'll do the job.
0: Yeah, and, and many of the mics, even inexpensive ones, will have that kind of look because it needs a, you need a low latency return of your own voice. And so usually that headset's in there and it's designed to give you both the computer and your uh, record there. So the only problem is you won't be able to hear yourself now. (laughs) So through that process, so you have to see if there's some kind of pass through or just be willing to not be able to hear your own um, mic or again, to go back to what was talked about earlier, using a headphone splitter uh, could potentially uh, work as well. Go ahead, Courtney.
5: Yeah, I don't know if I haven't tried this, but you know, the Zoom F2, uh, which is like a a small recorder. It has a plug for your microphone and it is also a USB interface to your computer. I'm not sure if that would record both your microphone and, uh, and the return from the computer uh, locally right. when you hit the record button. That might be a possibility, but haven't tried it. Next question.
1: From John Pretto in Las Vegas, Nevada, any feedback on Zoomtopia's keynotes yesterday? Go, John.
4: I thought that out of all the presenters that I watched, I thought that Braden did the best job. He, he came out with the wide stance, uh, what's his name, with the Air Force One from Apple? Does this wide superhero stance? Oh, yeah. <laughs> they're coached to do that, Alex? I don't
6: know. It just looks really Greg
5: good. Here. Greg Federini or no, Greg Federini,
6: yeah. I'm not crazy
3: about the integration of all the communication uh tools inside of Zoom. I just I I, I think they're trying to be Microsoft or Google. I don't see I don't see
0: it. Yeah. I mean I, I think that it is uh I have to admit that I there's a you know, there's a second window that opens up every time Zoom pops open that is all these other things. And to me it's just all these other things, and I just I just close it and go back to what I was doing. I think that they have a hard, I think the hard part is, is that I'm sure that the number one reason that they're given that, oh, why haven't you moved from Teams to, because you, you always do this, your, your, your salespeople are out there calling people and they're saying, you're using Teams, why don't you use Zoom? And they said, well, Teams has this, 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 and this. So they're giving the list. The problem is, would they actually change if you added all those features? And the answer is generally no, because it's just too heavy for them to do it they may get some some penetration in that area but i think that the other side of it is you have a lot of zoom users who aren't really looking for zoom to do anything else than what it what they're used to doing with it and i think that it is i do feel like it's the all the other communication tools are a distraction from them doing what they do well really well you know and i i you know i think that Uh, I I feel like Zoom had a lead, um, you know, or still has a lead uh, in video in the actual meeting part, the part that they were specializing in. But I don't know how long it will last. You know, I think that they're spending so much time on things that I think, uh, you know, that may be getting some traction, but are things that most of us don't care about. Most of their core users don't care about. Um, I think that that's a, a pretty big challenge. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell.
1: I enjoyed seeing some of our very own office hours, people uh, with the IVI uh, device, John Idelson, Ray Franklin, uh, Guy uh, Cochran. Can you explain for the listeners the IVI? Yeah, the IVI is a a one-piece Telestrator uh, Interatron device for Zoom. Which it allows you to make eye contact. Has a camera built in, audio. Um, it's a pretty neat thing. It probably will find a uh, interesting use in the medical industry.
0: Is this, but they, is this by Zoom or is it by somebody else?
1: Uh, it's by an individual uh, doctors, an eye doctor somewhere I think in uh, in the uh, in Aussie land. And uh, these gentlemen uh, are getting something really well put together. It's a very cool design. So I'm sorry, I don't have it to show you, but uh, that was cool. And the other thing I saw that was really neat was Oliver Breidenbach, from the inventor of uh, Mima Live, walking around with a digital sandwich board. Digital a digital sandwich. He had board. a sign on his back, a oh. a large flat screen that had a QR code that interacted with his uh, website. So if you saw him walking around, you could snap the QR code, the uh, screen would change with your question, and he would answer it right
0: on the spot. It's pretty That's cool. Funny. <laughs> that's funny. Um, the, uh, yeah, I think that the high, you know, I think that they were showing some production tools as well, some hardware, um, that was there. Though no, there's, there's Oliver. That's great. Um, the, uh, uh, I believe that the, it sounded like the zoom booth itself or where they were showing a lot of that hardware was a pretty popular location. Um, I saw a couple of photos from there. So, and so we'll have to, we'll, we'll get caught up on what, what those are once that team gets out of, uh, out of the zoom land out of Zoomtopia land, as far as the keynote goes, you know, I think that they uh I, I do think that they need to um you know this from pure technical perspective um I think that it was a little challenged you know, I think that the the unreal stuff on the back end was really cool, like the you know what they were doing with the zoom participants live um the LED walls were probably not quite the ones that they needed um nor you know, and the lighting was a little bit um a little rough and so um so anyway, so I think those are the challenges that they had that that to me are kind of basic ball handling skills today i mean 15 years ago we had trouble with that but it's it's i think some hopefully they can they can tighten that up for the next year next uh, next question
1: and it's been from paul wallace in austin texas what was the highlight of your zoomtopia experience and what was oliver breidenbach carrying around and uh, what about ray and john's presentation on eye contact
0: on that new telestrator I think we just talked about that a little bit, and I I, I don't think we have some of us have seen it. Were they jumping into after hours? Is this is where we were watching it, or was it a? I'm not sure where those things were being posted. So, um, but uh, yeah, I don't know where I don't know where people were seeing all of these things. <laughs> so I'm not sure where that was coming up. Uh, next question, Douglas
1: Carmichael with a question: What has your experience been with Unreal Engine Five on the Mac? What I've heard some of the more advanced features are PC only.
0: Yeah, in general, um, some of the more advanced features are PC are PC only, and and it's definitely more stable on the PC than it is on the Mac, and, and this is the with UE um, UE five as well. Obviously, the relationship with Epic and, and Apple is strained, so it doesn't mean that Epic's not doing any development, but they're you know the they're not in you know. Uh, uh, first country status <laughs> with Apple so uh, because they're suing them and so so that 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 doesn't buy you a lot so I think that they're um, you know not getting probably not keeping up quite with uh, what's happening Unity has is, is got a more inside the you know I don't think Unity is necessarily the be all end all but it has a more inside connection to Apple right now and so I think that that's probably affecting uh, how Unreal Engine works on the Mac next question Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida, and right here. Why didn't you tell me
1: Apple made voice isolation into a DAW AU plugin? Uh, the AU Sound Isolation is the name of the plugin. Also works live in mixers like Sound Desk. No settings, just works. But thoughts on the resulting quality?
0: Go, ahead, Jeff.
6: Yeah, I was amazed. I was <clears throat> just looking through the, the the plugins and saw that and looked it up and and so it is the same thing that if you're in FaceTime and you uh, use their mic settings. Um, this now is just turned into a plug-in. I, I tried it briefly. Um, I can turn it on now if anyone's interested, but I tried it briefly. It, it there's, Again, no settings really, just a wet-dry mix, uh, but it works great. Um, you know, I, I I wasn't thrilled with the quality, but it was better than, I guess, if you have a jet engine behind you, it'll take that out and you'll sound better than that. So I'm just curious if anyone else has tried it. You go, Bill.
4: The code for doing isolation of a voice against background has been evolving incredibly quickly. I mean, we didn't have very many tools other than CEDAR and and then eventually Noise Assist and those kind of things. And for, for a decade. And then suddenly I think about five years ago, it just started breaking loose and there's so much of this code out there now that works remarkably well. Uh, Also, remember Apple's been saying a long time, we don't talk about a lot of our AI stuff, but we've been working on it. And I think this is one of those um, subsets of that. It works remarkably well for me in circumstances. It's one of the reasons I'm able to work in this room rather than having to go into my voice booth, even for my commercial voice work now. Um, It's just gotten much better. If you have moderate to low Uh, sound, little fans and things like that. You can get an almost perfectly pristine sound out of a regular microphone in those kind of circumstances. If you get into an industrial setting or something like that, do not expect the magic button where you're going to turn it on and everything is going to completely go away and your voice is going to be pristinely separated. But it is a fabulous thing and where I think uh, people who want to do clean voice recording are lucky to have these new tools in play.
0: Go ahead, Courtney.
5: Yeah, I haven't heard it, but I was wondering if it if it only removes repetitive sound or repeating sound, uh, like like a fan noise or something that or a hum or a buzz or anything that can be modeled in, and added in an inverse. But these new AI filters are actually modeling your voice and then removing everything that doesn't match that model, uh, which uh maybe what this is doing, and that way it's good with transitory sounds like, you know, the kid crying in the next room or uh, your dog barking, those kind of things.
0: Uh, Yeah, next question.
1: Peter Moore from Auckland, New Zealand, asks, The YouTube Apple TV app has had significant features added recently. For example, clicking on the description now shows a panel on the right-hand side which allows you to view a full, scrollable description. Now view and rate comments, etc.?
0: Yeah, I I have to admit that I um, mostly just hit play. <laughs> Sometimes I hit the little the little trick is figuring out how to properly hit the upper corners of your of your um, controller, your controller there, and not in the very new one with the little buttons because I don't use that one. I still use the old controller because I like it. But if I hit the little the upper corner just right. Then it jumps ten seconds forward, which I use a lot. Um, if I don't hit it perfectly, then it brings up all this extra information, which slows everything down. So, you know, so the, there's your little uh, your little trick. That's all I pay attention to. Uh, understanding what the description of a movie of a show is means almost nothing to me because I'm just watching the video, and then I'm it's like I'm I'm scroll my version of scrolling channels is going to YouTube and jumping through videos. I don't really um, I don't have a, channels to scroll into somewhere else. Um, next question.
1: And I have this question. Uh, This Wednesday at 2.20 p.m. Eastern, your cell phone will receive a text message. This is a test of the National Emergency Alert System. Uh, This test is being conducted jointly by the FCC and FEMA. Will you be ready? Mitchell. And uh, whether your phone is muted or not, it's going to make a very annoying sound. So I bring it up only in that some of you are voiceover artists and it may be sitting next to you, muted while you're reading. And all of a sudden at 2.20, you're going to get an annoying uh, bad take because of the uh, noise it's making. But uh, they've tried this before. Sometimes it works. Sometimes people are not prepared for it and uh, think something nasty is happening. Uh, It's very interesting.
0: Good, Bill.
4: I think unless you put your phone in a Faraday cage the day before, you're going to hear this. And they've been doing, I think, a pretty decent job of letting you know. I've probably gotten five alerts on five different devices, so 25 different alerts saying this thing is coming. They're trying to make it subtle, but it's going to happen. So I think most everybody will be ready at the right time at 2.20 p.m. Uh, Eastern tomorrow. Or today. Courtney. Today. Courtney. Yeah, I wonder why why they chose 220 I always I was just
5: going to say that. I was like, I, I yeah. wonder
0: how many meetings there were to decide right. what time. And, like, and, or maybe
5: they did an analysis of when people are gathered together for lunch and banquets. Or, or, or not. Or not gathered together. together. Like, yeah, like not, this that's what the, I mean. And, and then picked a, a, picked a time that was outside of those times. <laughs> so, that, uh, yeah, because I would love to be in a meeting with 400
0: people in a in a live auditorium yeah. or something when this goes off. That's going to be amazing that'll be a new a new feature of Zoomtopia as they have this uh, national emergency i think that that'll be a someone's got to record it uh, I, I hopefully if, if someone's at Zoomtopia watching this they they should uh, at, at at 11:19 uh in the morning or 11:18 they should turn their camera on and just point it out into a into something and see what happens when it all goes off uh, go ahead jeff
6: um you know, this is interesting because I've seen a lot of people talking about this, not just kind of letting people know talking about it. People have theories and everything else. I don't, I don't know why. I think it's a good thing that they're letting everyone know this is going to happen. So and hopefully it says this is a test, not like the, you know, the Hawaii thing or like missile inbound or something like that. Um Now, by the way, I, you just made me think of this, one of my autom- part of my automation to start recording. Uh, is it sets my phone to turn? I turn off uh, automatically. Turn off cell. I turn off the cellular antenna. I leave it connected to Wi-Fi, but I turn off the cellular when I when I have my phone here in the booth and I'm recording. Mm-hmm. I wonder uh, if anyone knows. Will I get yeah. that by way of like? You'll, Apple you'll tell messaging. us tomorrow. <laughs> it's a test. Yeah, we'll find <laughs> yeah out. exactly. This right. is a big test. But I do that for for a number of reasons. You know, I don't want the noise yeah. into the mic, but also so I don't get weird things like that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Good, Mitchell.
1: Yeah, just a note. Uh, our friends uh, in Europe and the rest of the world will not receive this test.
0: Hopefully, it's not a global, if it does happen, let us know. Uh, that, there, that's the next
1: step
7: is the global uh, warning. The uh, global warning sig- signal. Go ahead, Chris. That's creepy. I heard a great conspiracy theory that said that this test is going to be at some frequency that's going to set off all the nanoparticles that were injected into everybody who took the vaccine into their life. <laughs> everybody, <laughs> everybody knows that. You know,
4: oh, come
0: on. That'll be it. I just
7: had you it know. yesterday. Thanks. Yeah,
0: sure. And then when it doesn't happen, then that conspiracy theory goes out, out the door. Oh, no, no, no. They just oh, they no, no, tune no, it right. It, They're just going to keep on doing it until they tune yeah, it the correctly. There has it. to be another test. Um, yeah, but it, it may not be better. The other thing, the other article that we that I saw today was we are now in the maximum, what was it, maximum solar activity in the, uh, for the sun. So the next year they, they've now moved it up. They said they now have, you know, normally I guess we get 125 sunspots and and uh,
7: now they're at 160. They think they might get, they might break the the, the measured record. So, Is that because one side of the sun has more activity and it and it's the season I think it's PowerPoint. one side of the sun that's pointed towards the sun so it's the
4: it, <laughs> sun has a skin condition anyway, so the
0: um no the, but the, uh, the it's a higher rate of solar flares and uh, CMEs uh, are possible at this, at this little moment so the next year it's is been nice of, knowing y'all yeah exactly exactly because all the stuff may just stop working alright next question
1: Jack Ruppel from Breckenridge, Colorado. Is there a native NFC tag writer app for Fire tablet, iPhone, iPad, and any free and safe apps if not? Go Jesse.
3: I can't recommend an NFC writer. I apologize for that, but I am just going to advise again, uh, don't use a free app for generating these, these ping-based communications with your clients or with, with your audience because the free ones uh they filter you through some back door to somewhere, and you don't know what is being installed on, or you know what kind of trackers or cookies are being put on their phone as these devices ping them around from the backdoors that actually pay for these free apps.: Yeah, absolutely. Quick reminder
0: that uh, you, you can ask questions throughout the hour. Um, so uh, you can ask them either in Makana or using askofficehours.com. Uh, the askofficehours.com will work 24-7. So if you have a question that pops into your head, you can just throw it, throw it in there. If you're using the radio app, there's now a little button there um, that you can that you can use. And if you don't have the radio app, you can find a, a link to it inside of Discord under the Alex announcements at the very top. Um, so uh, check that out and and try the, try it out. Uh, ask ask a couple questions through that system. Next question.
1: Here's an example of one of those questions that came in via the QR code. What is it that Pro Tools can do that Logic can't, and where does Digital Performer fit in? And this is from
0: Chester Sweeney in Las Vegas. Uh, go ahead, Jeff.
2: So each of the the DAWs and there's many of them out there have their strengths and their weaknesses. Um, I would say that. Pro Tools is the one that probably fits across all the different types of audio production the best, meaning it will do standard music production it will do spoken word, it will do uh, sound for film and television production. So the the thing that Pro Tools primarily can do that Logic doesn't do as well is all the time code based synchronization um, and larger, larger, larger systems that are needed for film production. Uh, Logic excels at uh, easy music production, Uh, well, easy and quick. There's a lot of great uh, built-in tools, virtual instruments, um, things like Ableton Live work great in uh, bars and beats based uh, editing and developing uh, loops and developing uh, those kind of uh, productions that build like that and actually can happen live where you can trigger uh, portions of the program live to turn on and off and work in loops. Um, things like Pyramix and Nuendo and those kind of things may and um whatever it's called now, Sonic Blade, have really, really, really strong uh, crossfade uh, capability and can so do very precise musical editing. So those tend to work more in like classical music. So each of them has their own strength. And I think Pro Tools is the one that kind of uh, maybe isn't the strongest in any one area except for uh, audio for film and television, but is the strongest generally across all of that. And by the way, if you want to see some great uh,
0: Logic tutorials or, or just walkthroughs, um, Phineas uh, Eilish, uh, Billy Eilish's brother, um, builds all the stuff in, in Logic, and uh, he's got some stuff on YouTube that is kind of mind-blowing. I think one of Billy Eilish's songs is actually Ships with Logic if you download it. And so you see all the tracks there, so it's kind of kind of slick. Next question. From Paul Wallace in
1: Austin, Texas, will the FAA outlaw all Chinese drones, for example, the DJI? And will this destroy DJI? It's already illegal now to fly anything above half a pound.
5: Courtney? Uh, no I don't think they're going to uh, make that illegal because then half of the stuff the military uses would be grounded uh, because uh, I think more than likely the FCC may have some issues with uh, DJI with their video transmission uh, frequencies because I'm not sure they're obeying all the laws there in uh, transmission levels and height and uh, all of that stuff and they're transmitting video but the FAA their control is over airspace and and uh, Really airspace really doesn't have anything to do with uh, uh, data communications as far as you know uh, sending data back to a foreign country uh, so i don't think uh, they would be the agency that would outlaw them. It would be some kind of a legislative action that happens uh, to try and outlaw them, uh, over something with a foreign something from a foreign
0: country you know. go ahead, Jesse.
3: Um, I believe I I I looked this up a little bit, and I believe that what's happening is politicians are leaning on the FAA to try to get um, foreign-built drones out of government use, and I think that this is not a terrible idea because when you're flying a DJI drone and all that flight data is connected to your DJI app, and there can also be the potential for all the video and photo files. So if you're surveying a military base, uh, you don't really, like an American military base, you don't really want DJI to have access to all the locations on that base. So I understand why politicians are trying to put some pressure on um, on the FAA to put some pressure on to get to get these things banned, but uh, they will not ban DJI drones uh, at large across all um, all industries in America. This will not destroy DJI. It's too useful, um, and not to. What was the third one? Oh, uh, and it's already illegal now to fly anything above half a pound if you don't have a license, but you can become licensed and then you can fly drones that weigh more than half a pound. Not to allay all your fears, please keep an eye on the increased drone purchases by police forces. Uh, There are, I believe, reasons to be worried about uh, too many drones in the government, not, not enough drones in the government. Go ahead, Mitchell.
1: Uh, Courtney brings up a good point about the RF power uh, violating FCC rules because effective radiated power, even if it's a small amount, is a combination of the height above average terrain, and these drones can go up there pretty high, and uh, the powers, which basically means that the higher you go, the lower the power should be in order to get an ERP that's uh,
0: legal. So you may have a point there, Courtney. And there have been some bans, I think, that um, state-owned organization or state run organizations in Florida, for instance, I don't think can use DJI, um, uh, drones. And so, and it has been, uh, talked about of how it's crippled some of their agencies because they were using them for mapping and so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting. I, I, I would be very surprised if they, if they go down that path. It is a, a point of, you know, danger, uh, for, you know, if you look at the, you know, what's happening in Ukraine, the, uh, the, what's happening with drones in general is it they are evolving very very fast because of the of the um, pressure so um, you know what we had a year ago or two years ago will be very different than what we have in three or four years from now from a point of you know again from risk risk factors and so on and so forth just because uh, there's so much evolution going on right now in in, uh, in Ukraine. next question
1: Alexander Knight in Port. Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada. Does anyone make a cage with a visa mount for the Elgato Stream Deck XL that would allow me to mount it on an articulated monitor arm?
6: Jeff? Yeah, um... This, you know, they make. I, I would look at uh shelves. I, I was waiting to see if anyone else knew uh, of something that uh, might be better. They make these shelves. Um, I don't know why that's not showing, but if you uh, if you search for DJ equipment, um, uh, you know, for DJs, they they have all kinds of things. Can you see that now? Yeah. Um, so the, and I use something very similar. Uh, where you can you can adjust, uh, for instance, the arms so they're not getting in the way and they hold it in, and they mount to the arm. You, you can see on there it has a, it has a visa mount. But if you just search for DJ equipment, there's all kind of mounts for all the various little goodies that DJs have on arms and a, and a, um, a DJ stands. Good bill.
4: I just did a general search under Stream Deck mounts and came up with page after page of variations, but with all sorts of backends on them. So I can't imagine that a Visa mount wouldn't be uh, relative to this. It seems like a lot of people want to do what you're doing, and there were all sorts of options enabled for you to do it. So just do a little Googling around. I think you should find something that will fit you just fine, Alexander.
0: Yeah, take a look. Mechanism makes one called Deckmate. Uh, visa Mount Bundle, and uh, you may be able to find it there. Go ahead, Chris.
7: I want to remind people, I've mentioned this before, there is a product by 3M called uh, VHB Tape, very high bond, and it is um, it is Mad Max-level double-stick tape. It's like for the apocalypse. Uh, super, super strong. I mean, people make RVs with this stuff, bonding like aluminum sh- sheets to aluminum vertical, you know, poles, so uh, very useful for a lot of different things, Uh, I learned about it from Kenan, Uh, he uses it quite often in some of his builds, very useful, VHB by 3M Courtney?
5: Uh, Yeah, and I I use, I was going to mention the same thing, if you have a visa mount, I make my own visa mounts, 3D print them, and then I just take, uh, I have my stream deck mounted on one of these, so I just put a, a magic arm into the threaded uh, connector that's here then i can adjust the angle on it and uh, i use the command strips from uh, 3m which are basically hard velcro and they're removable so you stick it on the back of your stream deck you can remove it later and has a really good adhesive on it and then you just snap that on to the command strip and it'll hold it pretty pretty securely but you can still pop it off and take it
0: somewhere else and leave your mount behind if you want to And if you're doing some of these prints, remember that oftentimes there's reference models that you can look for. So if you look for a Stream Deck reference model, if you search for that, you'll see a 3D model. You can bring that into your 3D package so that you have something that is um, mechanically accurate. Um, Then you can start building. You could design your own mounts at that point that will latch right onto that that piece. Um, Those kinds of things are pretty useful. Next question.
1: Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado. What is the panel's recommended app for QR code creation? Printer for QR code printing, physical media?
0: Jesse?
3: I use QR Factory and this is a paid app on the App Store. Um, It's $15 a year subscription or $30 for the license and it gives you pretty much every tool you could possibly imagine to make a QR code and make it pretty just the way you like. Um, You can do the color of the of the data, the color of the background, structure, safe zone, text, all kinds of options. Really, really convenient. And I love that it's paid. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Courtney.
5: Now, I don't have as as fancy a one as that, but if you're using Chrome as your browser, it's built in. So if you go up to your browser, you'll notice there's a little icon right over here after the little Google thing. You just click on that. Uh, You navigate to whatever uh, website you want to use in your QR code first, and then you just go down here to create QR code. And it pops up, creates a QR code, and then you can either copy that to your clipboard or download it. And it downloads it as a PNG file, which is, you can load into and edit and change the little dinosaur in the middle to something else if you want. Uh, and use that,
7: uh, and it creates it for you automatically, right built into Chrome. Good, Chris. Every, every once in a while, I just like doing this for fun. So, hey, Alex. Uh, y- you really like using some of the online free QR code <laughs> generators, don't you? Can you talk about that for a moment? Yeah, you should never do that. Um, yeah, so the,
0: um, the, the online ones will basically put themselves in the middle, so you'll pay a subscription, and then if you stop paying that subscription, you, they'll stop, your QR codes may stop working. So you want to be very careful about not using online QR code tools. Um, that's why we use QR. There's a lot of things that are prettier than QR Factory, which you know, we give them feedback on uh, relatively often. Um, that you know that there's little creative tools that you can use to be adding those things, but we don't use the online ones because of get again we want to make sure that it's a clean connection um, to that that you have there. Uh, QR I, again, I use QR Factory as well. It's a Mac Mac uh, program. I put my little logo in the center. Um, I turn up the um, the repetition within the QR code that makes it a little bit more. Um, uh, able to handle things one thing to remember is if you're building qr codes for android we think that it, it you need to have a little border around it um the iphone doesn't seem to need that but the android does and it's, it's, it, it does much better with even just one pixel of, of border
6: around it uh, to, to read it properly go ahead jeff and, and i think you mentioned that a while back and i looked at it and i i think it is unquestionably probably the best one I will say from an advertising standpoint, the the plus side of potentially using an online generator, that is a legitimate company. Um, if you're not set up to, to track analytics for a URL, that's what you get. So if this is for a short-term one-off marketing campaign versus a, a perpetual use, but if it's for a specific uh, marketing campaign that has a time window. If you don't want to mess with any of the other stuff, that's what they give you is all the analytics and, and everything that comes along with scanning it by being in the middle of it. So there, I, I think there are uses for it. Next question.
1: And speaking of QR codes, this question from Andre uh, dolay in Berlin is a QR code question. Changing from an eight-year-old Android to an iPhone 15 Pro Max, what apps should I consider loading and what are must-haves for fun, for work, for productivity?
4: Good, Bill. Way too big a question to answer here, but congratulations. Not that one's better than the other. I don't believe that's true, but they are different. So one of the things I will note is that as you start adding apps to your phone, understand some of the nuances of how the iOS system for managing Apple's apps work. One of them, which I it took me about maybe three or four months when I first started using my iPhone to understand, was that if you uh, push and hold on an app on the front of your desktop, the apps will start wiggling. That lets you reorganize them, but also if you drop one app on top of another, the iPhone is smart enough to try to figure out, oh, those are both photography apps. So it will bundle them together in a icon called photography. And you can put multiple individual apps in a class under those things. It really helps for visual organization on your iPhone, because most of us who have hundreds of hundreds of apps, it gets really annoying having to kind of scroll eight screens down to find something you're looking for. Yes, you can search for it, but a lot of us are just visual and we're on the run and we want to do that. So by bundling things into groups, I know my, not first page, but second page of my phone has a lot of groups on it. The reason that my first page doesn't is because I reserve that not only for some of the bigger icons in the new system that allows you to get calendars and things like that, but also has the most used apps. So my front page of my phone is kind of sacrosanct. These are the ones that I'm pretty sure I'm going to be constantly using. Second page for me is groupings in folders. And then the things that I occasionally use are farther back. So you'll find strategies that work for you like that. It's just something to understand as you get into this new ecosystem.
0: Yeah, my front page has all the things I use on a daily basis, and then I just search. <laughs> I, I just push, push, I just thumb down, and then just search for everything. I don't really look for. I don't. I don't try to search through the pages anymore. Uh, go ahead,
6: Jeff. I think if you're moving from an eight-year, I mean, really any eight-year-old phone. But the fact that you're going from an eight-year-old Android to an iPhone, I think one of the things you'll want to have handy is the Breathe app, which is uh, one of the built-in native <laughs> relaxation, because you're going to be so overwhelmed with all of the new things that have opened up for you that you just simply have not been able to do uh, Breathe. But Uh, Kidding aside, one of the things Apple has really focused on is health. Uh, I'm not completely up to speed to what uh, Google offers, but there are a lot of health functionality built into iOS, and Breathe is one of them, but there's a number of them uh, syncing with your medical provider if they support the system. There's uh, medication reminders and tracking, a whole number of health. I mean, they've really gone hard and are continuing to go hard into the health market. Good okay, Courtney.
5: Yeah, there's thousands of suggestions anyone could make. One of the things that I always put on my phone is this thing called uh Clinometer, C L I N. And it's if you ever want to level anything, it uses your phone to do a bubble level to give you it'll tell you if you want to put something at 45 degrees you can adjust it uh, align the edge of the phone and this will tell you what uh, what degree it is at and if you lay it flat it becomes a bubble level I don't know if you can see it there because I can't unflatten it, and then that bubble it will flatten it in four directions. And when you get it to read zero in both directions, it's flat. So it's great for leveling cameras, uh, leveling pictures on the wall. You know, anytime you need to find out what an angle is, something is at.
0: Yeah, and that is also as you get into the iPhone. Um, there's a, there's an app that ships with the iPhone called Measure, which also has a bubble level built into it. It's just part of the uh, the app. It also has this measuring tool here that will actually um, you can use a an arrow if if you have the new iPhone. You can you'll see a little button or a plus, and you can point at something in the room and just tap on the plus, and it'll set a point. And then you just go over and look at another point in the room and hit the plus button again, and it'll tell you what the distance is between it. And we've done laser measuring against that, even when we're walking. I've I've walked, I've taken, dropped a point, walked across the room, and dropped another point, and it was within an inch of a laser measure doing the same thing it's kind of it's kind of amazing um so anyway so uh so there's that's built into it of course you know there's things like discord um that you're going to want to have in there polycam is a good one if you want to start it there's a subscription but if you want to do 3d models um or build i build quick 3d 3d models of rooms and stuff that we have to work in with polycam um and i find that one to be the best one to use in general um blackmagic's camera is free and it is uh, very, very effective. Um, and I think that it's going to be really interesting for a lot of the stuff that we do. Um, those are the ones that, that kind of jump out at first. Of course, the Zoom app and, a, and the
7: radio app for uh, office hours, which you can find in Discord. Uh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, there's this one I've been using down here. It's this green one. It's called Phone, I think. And it's great. You can, with a, you can use your a phone as a phone. Number it doesn't work numbers. that well. <laughs> with the appropriate numbers, you can actually talk to people that aren't with you remotely. Yeah. But doesn't, it doesn't—it gets worse. That, every that doesn't work on the iPhone. You have to it use doesn't FaceTime. Work great. I think that's the. It, rule. Doesn't work, it doesn't work great. I think they're working on it. Yeah. It's kind of cool. You might want to look into that one. When you do call other
0: people from from either iPhones, you will find that the audio quality of FaceTime generally is significantly better than your phone, uh, and the stability oftentimes is better than your phone. Uh, it, it does a really they do a really good job, and so a lot of times, if I know people are there, I I don't you don't have to do FaceTime with video. You can just do FaceTime audio, and you'll find that it's uh, it works really well. Go ahead, Jeff.
6: Yeah, it's funny that Chris mentioned that because I finally—it was a few months ago—but finally took the phone off of the bottom dock. It was not a frequently enough used app uh, that I needed it on the bottom dock. Yeah, you go, Jeff.
2: So I don't know, Andre, if you're a musician, but I always tell anyone who's a musician, the first thing you need to put on there is a tuner. Uh, I like Clear Tune, and I also like TE Tuner, which also has a fabulous metronome and a spectrum analyzer. And it gives you a little smiley face when you're in tune. Uh, And then a little mini uh, piano, so you can type out melodies when you're thinking of things. And then uh, I'll also put in uh, an SPL meter, thinking about the health thing, having some good... um, Ear health is a great option. If you get into the Apple system, get yourself an Apple Watch, which also has an SPL meter in it, and it will give you warnings when you're in uh, loud environments and need to use hearing protection. Yeah, Decibel, by the way, is 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 one of those readers. I think it does have a
0: little bit of a subscription or something to it. But uh, again, we've tested it against some pretty expensive pieces of equipment, and it's remarkably. If you turn your phone upside down and just hold it up like in the same place that the other one is, within, you know, it's a plus or minus, like a dB. So it's it's really, it's fascinating. Um, Yeah, next question. Jack Ruppel from Breckenridge, Colorado, asking,
1: can I have someone scan an NFC tag with a Fire tablet and have a YouTube video saved to an external SD drive and start and play a specific portion of that video? Any Android device, iPad, no SD? Jeff?
0: No. Yeah, I don't think that the, I mean, I, I don't, the Fire Tablet is really just an advertising and buying product from Amazon. It's not really a it's not a real device, in my opinion. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I don't know if
5: the Fire Tablet has an FC built into it. First of all, second of all, you probably could do it, but it'd take a lot of gyrations. You'd have to mount that uh, external SD drive as a network drive. Then you'd have to uh, type in the the path to that as a local network drive, and it will only work on your local network, wouldn't work over the internet. Uh, And then you could tap the NFC, it would go to that network drive, and you could set that network drive to autoplay, or or set it to a file that it would autoplay, that one file. Uh, But uh, that's about, uh, whether it would go to a specific portion, you'd have to edit it to start at that specific spot. So it'd take a lot of work, but you probably could do it, but probably not worth it. Jeff?
6: I should say I would love to um, maybe have them explain a little bit more, break down the question, because the two seem to be a disconnect. In other words, if it's one specific machine, a local video, then why the need for the tag? The uh, Scanning a tag implies one or more people walking up to a tag and scanning it, and and then usually that's going to be to something online, accessible, and there's plenty of ways. I mean, if it's not known to have a video, let's say, on YouTube that is hidden, except for someone with well, the URL. Well, it sounds like,
0: like I, they want to be able to just grab onto it, like be able to pull it off, off of YouTube there, uh, of something that they have. You know, I, I do think that you're right that the video, that a YouTube video might not be the place that how you want to distribute it. There's probably plenty. If you don't put the YouTube part in, um, it's probably there. I, I do find it interesting. I, I would not use NFC tags unless I had to. Like it, they're, they're really tricky compared to uh, just QR codes. Like, so I'm curious why, why the NFC versus QR, it's just that they're, they're very quirky, you know, and, and NFC in general is a pretty quirky uh, platform. And so uh, it works in very, very close, you know, quarters, but it's just a, it's kind of a, I mean, I find that it's quirky every time I go to Amazon, I, every time I go to Whole Foods, <laughs> you know, like otherwise known as Amazon. Um, anyway, uh, so so I, I don't, I wouldn't build things around NFC unless I had to. I can just uh, tell you for, for personal
6: use, you know, maybe not for public co- commercial use, but I use them every day. I have a number scattered about the, uh, my home for different things and, and one NFC. in my car. NFC, because you don't have to open an app. You don't have to start anything. You just take your phone tap the tag
7: and a thing happens. Okay. Um, yeah, they they get used in home automation sometimes. Okay. They're the little NFC stickers. They're cheap, too. It's kind of cool. Hmm. Uh, next question. Paul Wallace,
1: Austin, Texas. Will 8K ever be adopted by the general public? Jesse?
3: I'm going to say not really because of the law of diminished returns. Pretty much anything past 4K is hard for the eye to distinguish. You'd have to be sitting pretty close to your 4K monitor to be counting pixels. And it just, it, the, the, the uh, scale, the cost, it just goes up like a straight line the more K you add. But the benefit to the average eyeball is it becomes negligible very fast. Mitchell? Yeah, I agree with Jesse 100%. If you
1: took a 4K monitor and an K monitor and sat 10 feet away, I guarantee you wouldn't be able to see the difference. It just isn't there. Your eyes can only go so far. Now, if you're a professional shooting video or film, um, I know that's not the general public, but there may be an advantage to doing that. Uh, but as Jesse indicates, the price of an 8K sensor in, like, say, a Sony Venice 2 is astronomical compared to a 4K. So what's the reason you would use it? Well, so you can shoot and have that uh, that level of uh, quality in case you need it for a film transfer. But, again, 8K is far better than any quality of any film that's ever been released.
0: Uh, except for IMAX. All the IMAX films are uh, effective resolution of... a. Uh uh, Fifteen seventy is eighteen uh, k, uh, Courtney. Yeah, and unless you've
5: got a you know a Samsung Onyx screen the size of your living room wall, uh, you're not going to see the difference. And that that screen would cost you you know half a million dollars anyway. So uh, unless you're somebody like Bill Gates or Elon Musk, you're probably not going to be able to use AK. Even the newest uh, ATS, ATSC three or next gen as it's called, uh, TV transmission. Uh, for that is still in the process of being s- uh, rolled out it has been adopted uh, doesn't transmit in 4K usually most everything is 1080p it can transmit in 4K
7: but most stations are not much less 8K go ahead Chris you know if you look at the history of consumer electronics you know VHS and NTSC up through Blu-ray um, displays were kind of tied to the hardware medium right so the better the hardware medium, the, it made sense to buy better displays. We've now basically jettisoned all hardware playback. Most most of us have, I think, and with everything streaming, now we're dependent on you know what are they going to actually stream to us? Do do people want to stream eight K on you know eight K Netflix? Also, I thought it was interesting. Uh, Preto did a little poke around. Sixteen K by sixteen K is what the resolution of the sphere is. That's a lot of Ks. <laughs> uh, it'll be 8K eventually because they'll just stop making the other monitors. That's what happened
0: with 4K. I mean, they, they barely make any 1080s anymore. The price will drop. It'll be 8, eight by next uh, February, most likely. 8K will be below $2,000. Next question.
1: Next question from Joe Phillips in Murphy, North Carolina. It comes into us as a QR code question. Sound desk versus Loopback. Which, when, and why should I choose one or both?
6: Jeff? Uh, if I'm not mistaken, and, and some of the folks uh, can correct me if I'm wrong, Loopback does not let you use plugins or, or any effects. So it's it's fabulous for doing complex routing. And maybe Chris will indulge us and show us one of the many complex routing configs he has with loopback and and once you figure all that out and you save that preset it's wonderful sound desk is a true mixer so you have channels and you can create custom mixes of various sources but each channel like a real mixer you can uh dial in the sound it actually comes with a number of good uh native plugins for each channel but it also supports standard plugins uh AU, I know AU, I'm not sure about VST, but it, so you can use plugins live through that like, by the way, the uh, the newly discovered Apple um, uh, voice isolation through SoundDesk.
7: Go ahead, Jeff. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, I think Chris? Jeff had a pretty go good synopsis of that, so I'll send you know, it off to Chris. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I could show you a little bit. Uh, I, I think that the two products are different. Uh, um... So Loopback is, I think of Loopback as a patch bay, okay? This is this is how I patch all my apps into my sound desk, and here's my sound desk. And so each one of these apps or types of apps, like I have, uh, if you come over here, I have all my browsers on one fader, and I can turn them all up in QuickTime, and <clears throat> I think I have After Effects in here, too. The output of my black magic comes in here. Here's Zoom. Here's my headphones, and this is what I want to send out to the world. You can do all of that kind of stuff uh, with a loopback and um, what's the other one? Uh, audio, the hijack. Other, audio hijack. Audio hijack. Yeah. And, and And our friend Felipe has the most incredible audio hijack setup I've ever seen. Uh, for doing live streaming things, and to him it makes perfect sense. He was able to build it out modularly the way he wanted, but I think of Loopback as a patch bay, Sound as a mixer, with aux ends, etc., and plugins, as mentioned. Next question,
1: and this is another QR code question coming into us from Josh in Hernando, Mississippi. Any recommendations on a company that will make custom cable looms? I need a few 100-millimeter XLR, CAT6, and 100, 100, meters, meter, 100 sorry.
0: Mm- millimeter. very small. I don't think Very, you need very small, that. okay.
1: Yeah. Um, he needs that, XLR, CAT6, and single-mode fiber looms, and I don't like how the traditional braided sleeving coils.
0: Go ahead, Jeff.
2: A couple companies that I would uh, inquire with would be Redco, Uh, Performance audio and marker tech. Um, I'm not sure about all of those in one jacket. I've not seen fiber and Cat six and uh, an XLR audio line altogether. Good, Courtney. Yeah, there are a number of
5: custom uh, cable uh, harness builders. It depends on how many you're going to have made. It's probably not worth it to go with one of these companies uh, if you're just doing a two-off or something. But uh, if you just do a search, there's a number of Meridian Cable, uh, YC Cable, you know OEM wire harnesses that that do this. Uh, you know, as a business, they create wire harnesses that go into cars and in in uh, you know custom equipment that. Uh, You want to outsource creation of that wire harness to go in your equipment that has pickoffs at certain points rather than just a single long cable in a single jacket. Um, It sounds like that's what you're looking for is a single long cable with all the connectors coming out at the same point. That's probably easier to find one of your local cable manufacturers or an electronic store or something that creates custom cables
0: and let them create it uh, because they can uh, uh, create that for you. I also, um, uh, Gepco, is another one that builds these cables for you, as well as Clark Cable. Uh, Bill, real quick.
4: I would also suggest you ask them if the cable bundle you're looking for makes sense. And here's why I say that. You may be able to do a great over-under wrap with something that's got seven or eight audio things, but you add fiber in there, and that same handling may cause problems with that. And you hate to pay and spend all that money for a custom cable to have the one thing that you really needed to do break because of handling afterwards. So just ask the pros who deal with this stuff all the time whether this bundle makes sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, we do, I've, I've, we've do. had a lot of custom cables built for us, um, and uh, they do. you do have this thing where you're only using some of them. Uh, you have to be a little more careful of them. Exactly because what Bill said, but it is great when you know that your kit is going to be a certain thing or that cameras need a certain thing. So like a lot of times we built cables that had fiber power and Ethernet on, on them going out. And those are because we had those specific cameras in that package needed that that thing. And having a you know, again, I we didn't go as long as a hundred meters, but um, a, a fifty meter piece of that or and some well, in some cases, we did go to up to hundreds of hundreds of feet or, or, or meters. Um, and so I, I think that we, you know, that it's super useful when you want to keep those those cables clean, um, in that run and, and speed it up and not have it all get tangled up go ahead, Courtney.
5: Yeah, I was just going to, I forgot to mention this one company that I have built custom cables for me called No Shorts. They're a division of Pacific Radio No Shorts Cable Company. They build custom cables, and they will give you a quote if you go to com. And No Shorts, <laughs> Next keep
1: your question. shorts on, though. <laughs> Next question. That's a QR question from Chester Sweeney in Las Vegas, Nevada. I was in a market for a controller for Logic. The Artiphone instrument I1 took my eye and made me wonder, has anyone used this?
0: Go ahead, Jeff.
2: I have not used this. I just looked at it. It looks really interesting. Sort of uh, reminds me of a uh, rock band or guitar hero, uh, you know, sort of instrument instrument. little guitar strummy plastic thing. I worry about uh, the quality of it as far as like how much uh, sensitivity it has to uh, dynamics. Um, but as an idea generating controller, probably uh, really cool to take you away from your keyboard and and kind of get you in a different mindset for, for generating musical ideas. Um, maybe the kind of thing you want to see if someone has it and go test it Because with controllers, it's really about the the human interface and how well it responds. So you really do need to put your hands on it and probably can't rely too much on just the information that we have on the web and reviews. Next question.
1: Kyle Hammond uh, from Chicago, Illinois, asking, What was the app Alex used to scan venue? Will the iPhone 15 make for better scans? I need to scan a space
0: being used for theater. Yeah, I mean, it it depends on how big the space is and what you're trying to do with it. Um, For quick and dirty, I use Polycam. Um, Polycam is the one that I wander around with and I build models that I can use as a basic reference to to talk about things um, for... Uh, real use of real prep, then I start with a BLK 360, which I have. Um, so we'll scan those. Uh, and for industrial, like we're doing something that makes a difference, we'll go up to Faro 350s, which are something you rent or hire someone with. You don't, you don't buy one because uh, they're between thirty five dollars and $65,000 each. So, but uh, the, the, as far as an iPhone app, I find that the Polycam has been the one that I've been the most successful with. Next question.
1: Douglas Carmichael, I've seen uh, and been debating between a 14-inch or a 16-inch MacBook Pro coming from a 15-inch 2017 MacBook Pro, and one of the main applications I'll use will be MIMO Live. Would there be any potential thermal throttling issues on the 14-inch M2 Max uh, running MIMO Live for long periods? Go ahead, Jesse.
3: All things equal, if you've got the money, I would go with the 16-inch version. Uh, That said, perhaps we are overly cautious about this, but we don't do any continuous video processing for any live anything on a laptop. We want something with much better heat circulation than what a laptop can offer. So you might consider getting the smaller laptop and running Mimo Live off of something like a Mac Mini or a Mac Studio. Good, Bill.
4: I'm sitting in front of a 16 inch MacBook Pro M2 with the Max chip in it, and I am astonished that my old Intel MacBook ran about eight times hotter. I used to put my fingers up just below the screen to test about heat. I would constantly get, wow, the laptop's getting a little hot. Since I moved to this machine, I've not had one day where it's been more than a few degrees above normal. And this is doing the Zoom session every day. Now that's not the world's most complex processor hit, but it seems like they've got thermals pretty well under control and I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, Pick the one that you think best fits what you need to do. I don't think it'll be a problem.
2: Go ahead, Jeff. I went from a 15-inch MacBook Pro to the 16-inch. And the one thing I would caution you, I, I would not change what I did, but I would caution you to get to an Apple store and check them out or find someone that has it because it was quite a lot larger and thicker and heavier than I expected it to be. Now,
4: amen to that. They are pretty big. <laughs>
2: I, you know, I, I think that, uh,
0: I again, I'll keep on coming back to I, I would not get a I have a f- 13 or 14 inch, I'm not sure which one it is, but they're horrible <laughs> on the road to, to work with. I mean, unless you have an extra monitor, the keyboard is really small and the screen's really small. And um, I, I, I haven't got a new laptop because I haven't had the need for a new one. So I still carry that one around, but I, I don't enjoy it. So I would I would think about that really hard. Uh, coming up uh, in the next uh, next couple minutes, we're going to have, we have um, Rob Lewis here from Calrec, but uh, coming up in the rest of the day, we've got a couple things that are kind of interesting. Um, we have a behind the scenes tour of Zoomtopia with Sam Kakaiko, and that's going to be at 9.45 a.m. in inside of uh, After Hours. So come, jump in for that. Then you can see some of the stuff that Zoom has been working on there for events. Also, Squares TV Application Lab uh, is going to be at one p- or 10, p- 10 a.m. Um, also uh, on Wednesday. That's a regular lab um, that Michael Forrest uh, runs on, on Squares TV. Um, so that's at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. A quick reminder that we have a panel, new panelists uh, meeting, and that happens at uh, um, 9 a.m. That's going to be 9 a.m. right after uh, our new panelist meeting is going to be 9 a.m., which is right after the Saturday session. So 9 a.m. on Saturday, we have a new panelists meeting. If you're interested in being in the panel uh, and you'd like to find out more about it, you can go to panelist Just fill that form out and you'll get more instructions on how to join the panelist meeting on Saturday. Um, Coming up uh, the rest of the week, we've got an iPhone. The iPhone update we'll talk about tomorrow. We'll just talk about what that means and how we're using it with Log and Apple ProRes and so on and so forth. Um, On Friday, cable management. How do we build them? How do we find them? How do we run them? (laughs) We talked a little bit about that today. We'll talk about it more then. And then on Saturday, of course, is our test day and Sunday is our introspection day. So stay tuned for all of that. And we'll be right back with the second hour. Welcome back to the second hour, and we're really excited to have Rob Lewis here from Rec. Um A lot of you probably, I mean, a lot of us talk about Behringer and Yamaha and, and uh, a lot of the things that we use for events, but when you get into broadcast, um, Calrec is a mainstay. You see them in a lot of trucks and a lot of other things. And one of the things that... Uh, I thought was really interesting, and, and how I started talking to Rob was um, we were talking about um, remote production and how do we have something that we can remote into and then still have all the tools that you would see in a typical calrec, um, and uh, or, or any high end mixer. And so, uh, so we started talking about. It and I just thought it'd be killer to have have it, and we're going to talk about the Type R remote production console. And uh, we're really excited to have Rob on to uh, to give us an introduction. Hey, Rob, can you can you hey. hear us? Okay, hey, hey,
8: Alex, again, thanks for uh, inviting me on.
0: Yeah. So good to have you. So tell us, give us a little overview of the, uh, of the type R.
8: Right. So the type R is a native 2110-30 mixing console and it can be virtual, right? So it can be just the, um, the two RU box core. Um, And then it's all web served, meaning that you just pull up whatever um, uh, either Chrome or Safari or edge or whatever that is. And you put in the IP address of the type R and your console pops up. And again, all full GUI controls doing everything. And, uh, but the added advantage is you can add surface to that. We have faders. We have what we call a large soft panel, and a small soft panel, which allows your traditional rotaries, touchscreen and faders.
0: So, so this is, so this, so you have both the, um, so for, for this, you have you can use a web interface that, that, that you can show us, but you can also tie in hardware to it.
8: Exactly, exactly. So at its foundation, it's always a web interface, right? And then you just add Surface or not, right? Yeah. Or both, right?
0: And I think you have a little bit of an overview for us.
8: Yeah. So let me uh, share my screen here.
0: And for our listeners as, as the screen's coming up, uh, there's, there's going to be a lot to unpack here. So if you've got questions, go ahead and start throwing those in and we'll get to them after we go through the uh, the presentation. Go ahead, go ahead, Rob.
8: Okay, uh, great. So uh, just a quick overview, you know, Calrec, we're a UK company. We do nothing but broadcast consoles. So, you know, I always kind of make a note of that. So whenever we develop something, either hardware or software, it is for the broadcast market and, Um, You know, we do from the World Cup to the Super Bowl to probably 90% of the major sports in the U.S. Uh, And then one of the things that we started doing more and more of is remote production um, because what COVID kind of made us. And were
0: you doing much of that before that or was it really COVID that pushed you into that into that corner?
8: Uh, COVID accelerated everything. Mm -hmm. we We were definitely going there, but it accelerated it by five to eight years probably because the clients now were willing to try, you know, they were forced to, to move forward. Right. Um, and so that really was the, the push forward. So with the, uh, the, the type R, um, there right. we go. Uh, the, as I was saying, it's a native 2110-30 console. So um, one of the big advantages the type R brings though, is this, Scalability. You and,
0: can and, s- yeah, and why do you make it, why did you make it native 2110 as opposed to, I mean, a lot, you know, because for some of us, that, that means that there's another conversion box somewhere in the middle of that that's going to have to happen because, is it, because it's 2110. Is right. that a, you know, what was the, what were the key reasons to just make 2110 and not support other, other formats?
8: Well, we do support other formats, but we felt, and CalWORK has always done this, is follow the standards. And the SMPTE 2110-30 seem to be the forefront of that standard coming out. I mean, we still work with Dante, Mm -hmm. you know, um, with Livewire. I mean, the problem with AS67 is this umbrella of everyone's interpretation's a little bit different. Um, So, you know, hence the confusion that happens across the board. But with 2110, on the Dash 20, you can do your video. And so the advantage there is your, your audio and video can live on the same network. And that's one of the, the big pushes. There's a big brother to the Type R, called the Impulse, and this is massive, right? These are thousands of DSP channels. Uh, it's over an eight thousand squared router, and these do the huge production. So we actually came out with with that product um, basically around the same time as the Type R, right? And so you know, it was just trying to find that standard in the industry that was going to stick. But again, right. and you'll see in the, the in the presentation here, we do work with with all right. the other. Standard formats. Right, right. So, uh, but just back to that scalability, you can add DSP. So, um, and I'll get into that a little bit more, but it can be as small as 20 DSP channels and as many as 120. You can scale the IO, so just keep adding IO boxes, right. or maybe there are other 2110 devices and you don't need IO boxes, right? They just connect right into the switch. Right. And then the last thing is the, the surface, right? It can be a virtual surface or a hybrid where you just add these panels and you can kind of see here in the picture.
0: That and in this case, you might, you might say, okay, here are the eight channels or, or the 10 channels that I'm, or uh, 12 channels that I'm, that um, that that I'm going to use all the time. There may be other things that I have to route, but right. I don't need, necessarily need hardware for all of those because right. I'm not managing them live.
8: Right, exactly. Like kind of the hot ones that you know you need to get to. Um, you might want those physically, you know, right in front of you. And then the other ones can be on a touchscreen or or wherever else. Um, But you can see in this picture here um, that um, these other panels, they are connected via a bracket when it's connected to a fader, but it's all power over Ethernet. So you can place these and customize these into furniture or do whatever you want. So there's just a lot of flexibility and then the advantage you'll see on this one too, is it's a little bit smaller form factor. So for remote production, when the, when the A1 wants the mixer at their home, we're not bringing in this gigantic audio desk, right? It's something that they can manage. Right. Um, and again, and you
0: can decide or you may, you may want to split those up as well. So you may, right? you can exactly. break them up to the, you know, and really um, design them around what you're, what you're actually doing.
8: Exactly. Exactly. So, um, uh kind of on this slide here, the biggest one is really the the last bullet point, these three consoles per core. This is pretty cool because what you can do is you can have three completely discrete audio control rooms, one, two, and three. So a good example is a studio might start out with just one audio control room. And then maybe six months later, they decide to do a podcast and get a studio going for it. Well, you can just add another mixer to that core and not have to get any more hardware. Only other hardware you might need is IO. And so this again allows for a lot of flexibility within the system. And you can have up to three discrete mixers and that's discrete DSP, that's discrete bus outputs, that's discrete monitoring. So it's the whole shoot and match. Um, And as I mentioned, you can get 20 to 120 channels Um, You can have up to 60 faders or up to 27 of these panels, so it can get quite big uh, if required. Again, it's kind of a nice thing: scaling. Start small. Is everything working the way we thought it would work? You know, you don't have to have a big investment up front, and eventually, just kind of build it out to what your needs and requirements are. Got it. And then what it offers. So. At our foundation, we're always about redundancy because we're in the broadcast world. So you can have a redundant core, probably necessary when you're doing multiple mixers. But again, it depends on the show you're doing. If it's not a, a high availability show, you can maybe get away with it. Um, but um, I would say 97% of the feature functionality of the Type R matches our flagship product of the Argo and the Apollo and the Artemis. So it's fully loaded with all of the broadcast features. So everything you would expect from a professional um, console, broadcast console. And then just kind of dipping into a little bit of the the hardware. So you just kind of have that framed uh, out is what what it is. I'll start with this top box, which is the core. And so this is the foundation. This is a core, the console can be just this. So all of our gears always redundant power supplies. But on the back of the core, we do give you some IO. We have eight mic line in and out. Uh, You have four AES stereo balance in and out. And on these D-sub TASCAM pinouts, 12 GPIOs. And then here's your AOIP connectivity. We have two cards. We support 2022-7 for the redundancy. And they do um, 256 channels in and out. Uh, Each card or 512. And then for the streams, it does uh, 64 streams. So again, these connections would connect to your AS67 switch for your audio. And then on the front of the panel, we give you status LEDs because there's audio on it. This is kind of nice when you plug in a mic, you can quickly see if you're gonna, if you have signal, you don't have to go in and see if it's patched or what have you, you can quickly recognize that, hey, I do have signal. Um, and then here's a little bit of the health of the audio over IP, and then we give you a couple of uh, headphone outs and so the health. And,
0: yeah, and so and without the consoles that you showed us earlier, this is what you would end up with. This, this is the first thing. This is what you have here, um, and you put it in. And, and again, this you can add those consoles somewhere else or or not. Uh, exactly. You can have a web interface, or you can have, or again, you just have have this here.
8: Exactly. So we have a lot of. Um, Uh, clients that work with news automation systems like Ross Overdrive or Sony ELC or Ignite. And all they have is the core, you know, and, and that's it. So it's a really clean, easy setup. And we probably have about 80 of these things out there. So, um, um, and again, they go, Oh, we need a a single fader panel. You know, they decided that maybe six months to 12 months later, you know, simple, you know, Mm -hmm. just, just plug it in and it pops up. So that's the core. Okay, and then I'm just going to go over a couple of the IO boxes just to give you an idea. We have what's called the combo, which is the same IO spec that's on the back of the core. So you get another eight-mic line in and out, four AES balanced in and out, six more GPIOs, and again, your primary and secondary connection to your AES67 network. And, of course, you have your... uh, redundant and main power supplies. And then above the D-subs we have RJ45s. They're in a studio hub wiring configuration. So just RJ45 in parallel. Just another way to to wire. And status LEDs on the front of the combo for IO, health of my AOIP, and then a couple more headphone outs on the combo. And then we have dedicated um formats, so all analog, 16-mic line, in and out, same connectivity, same setup. And then 8-AS stereo, again, same connectivity, same setup. And then probably the most popular um, I.O. box we have is this modular frame. And this is pretty cool because what it does is it takes all the standards of audio, your SDI embedders, D-embedders, your Dante card, your MADI card other analog in and out or AES-3 and you slot them into this three RU box. And then this connects to the AS 67 switch. And it really acts as a bi-directional translator, bringing everything from perhaps Maddie to 2110 or from Dante to 2110 and going the other direction. So, and you can keep adding these boxes, the back planes, 512 in and out. Um, but if you need more, you just add another box again, back to that scalability. So that's really a lot of the IO. Um, I'm going to roll right into the um, surface and just quickly go over this, these things. So the fader panel, pretty self-explanatory, right? Six faders, six rotaries, whatever function I put in the rotary, I'll see the, uh, the feature set for it. So if it's a mic pre, I can see the gain. I can see phantom. If it's an aux send, I can see which aux send it is and its level. Um, I have six buttons, two above the rotary, two below it, two down here. Again, all customized, but normally it's gonna be your mute or your PFL or your left to mono, right to mono. And you can make it global for all these buttons or you can customize each individual one. And then down below the fader, you have a small TFT I call this confidence metering because we also we have a metering screen, but it's nice to see, hey, do I have something coming in or is the fader an output? You know, I can see the meter on on an output bus and I can see its format. If it says mono or stereo or 5.1, I can see if it's part of a VCA, if it's part of an auto mix, the labeling of the channel. So all that information pops up right here. And again, this is all power over ethernet. You plug it in, it lights up uh, and you're ready for action. The other surface is called a large soft panel and this is pretty slick. This is a 10 inch touchscreen that you can customize. There's up to 12 tabs on the top and a tab can be your EQ or your dynamics or your monitoring or something customized. So you can make a button to do a specific thing. Or you can set up the LSP for a user that's really not in, knows audio well. So you can kind of dumb it down where they can only push certain things because you're only going to design that button to do certain
0: things. And, and are those rotaries connected to that monitor or they can be separated from them? Is it is it part of that monitor?
8: It's part of that monitor. Right. Yeah. So And you can have it as a landscape or as a profile mm-hmm. um, set up. But yeah, these six rotaries, again, if I had uh, an EQ... I hit the EQ tab, these six rotaries would match, you know, either a gain or a frequency or a Q or whatever function I had selected. Right. And if it's for dynamics, then it would be a threshold control or ratio. Right. Uh, for monitoring, this is where it's really slick. Because, again, you can do all these things in the GUI. Everything you can do in the GUI, you can do on the surface, right? Everything on mm-hmm. the surface you can do in the GUI. For monitoring, it can be pretty complex. So you can set up a whole monitoring setup where you can just here, IFB four or mix minus two or program one or whatever that is. And you can put those buttons onto the screen and always have them available. And the nice thing, it can be your dedicated um, monitor section, right? So the user can knows he needs to go to this panel and that's gonna be and, their monitor. and
0: again, these are all, all these panels are, are, you know, basically they're just IP connections. So you can okay. connect these. So if you, if we set up a VPN, and, um, you know, anywhere in the world, someone could open up these panels and have these rotaries and have the nice. have all the hardware and they're tying directly into the into the mixer natively. It's not this isn't some kind of hack. It's just that it's the way that they're built
8: to be used. Exactly. I think I'll segue off a little bit here and just talk about what we did with ESPN, too. Uh, we did the Professional Fighting League in February and March, and it was for um, a six week tournament and what this uh, did is quite interesting. We had the core in the I.O. at the event, so it was in uh, Orlando, and the mixer was 60 miles away, and he had a full setup. He had a full uh, 24 faders and four LSPs.
0: Now, how is it delivering individual channels back to him remotely? So he's sitting there with
8: them. He's just monitoring the channels, right? So. Mm Again, everything's at the event. So the only thing coming back to the mixer is the monitoring of the audio. So that's where your latency pretty right. much is, right? And so- but How
0: is that How is that audio being delivered to him? Just from over
8: the... a codec, you know, oh, right, over, right. Over, mm-hmm. over the standard internet. Right, and right. again, they were okay. And I, um, uh, we have a little article I could you know, make available that goes through the proof of concept that we did, kind of spells it out. And these uh, engineers and mixers- they were actually okay with 175 milliseconds of latency Um, because it's a kind of a lower tiered event. And it was this, you know, fighting event, they kind of got a feel when things would happen. And the camera was far enough back that there really weren't issues. Uh, Again, they're just monitoring the audio from a latency point of view. The audio, the DSP is at the event and all that stuff is still timed. So That was kind of a long way for me to say, yes, you can have these panels anywhere in the world as long as it's connected to the same network as the Type R.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
8: Cool. And then we just have a smaller version of that. It's called the SSP, clever English name, right? Small soft panel. And it's a seven-inch touchscreen with one rotary and one switch. And again, could be a dedicated thing, maybe a bunch of guests uh, around the table, the moderator and they can control headphone level or be able to monitor specific things. Uh, Cough switch, yep, whatever you need it to be. And again, there's no fans in these things, so they can be right in the studio. It's it's a non-issue. And again, power over Ethernet, plug it in, it lights up. Again, a Type R supports 27 panels. We don't have anybody really close to that right now, so... (laughs)
0: Um, but send me, if you send me 27 panels, I'll figure it out. I'll, <laughs> right. I'll send you back a picture of here's 27 right panels now. all laid out.
8: <laughs> There's always someone in the room that goes, you know, yeah,
0: I need. That. I could do that.
8: Yeah. Um. All right. So that's the surface, right? Right. And so here is really coming back to the ability for the remote production itself, and this is the what we call Cowork Assist. This is the web served application that lives in the core. So again. It could be a PC, it can be a Mac. It's browser-based. If you have your Mac, you just pull up Safari and you put in the IP address of your Type R core. Right. And you're, you're running, you know. Um, a little bit later in the demo, I'm in San Francisco. We have our office in LA, which I connect to our core down there. Right. And boom, you know.
0: Well, and, and I'm going to push you to go pretty pretty fast because I think the, the questions are starting to stack up here for us. So uh, yeah. so let's try to get to the demo in the next couple minutes.
8: Yeah, I mean, I can almost fly there right now. Um, Mm. Real quick, it's good to see a 50,000-foot view of how we connect. You know, core connects to switch. This is the modern-day router, right? All your edge devices, uh, I.O. connects right into here. And then if you need a Surface, again, these PoE switches, they go into here. If you don't need a Surface, you can just have your PC or Mac here running the uh, 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 Safari or Chrome. Mm -hmm. And this is worth hanging on for just a second. This is that DSP pack I was mentioning. There's four different levels, 20, 40, 80, 120. So these are the amount of DSP channels. So if you had a big one, a 120, remember I said there's three separate mixers in the core. So you can run a 120 and have two discrete audio control rooms, each with 60 channels, each with 16 auxes, each with 16 groups, each with three mains, each with their own dedicated monitoring and each with 11 mixed minuses. So between the mix minus and the auxes, you have 27 IFBs and mixed minuses. So That's it's great. Packed, quite, quite a punch. And again, we're NMOS compliant. Um, can, you,
0: can you explain to our listeners what NMOS compliant means?
8: Sure, so network media, open specification. This is the goal of really a plug and play. So again, same kind of challenges as AS67. It's people's interpretation of the NMOS spec is always different. So, right. you spend a lot of time working with the other manufacturers, making sure we're on the same page. We did this with uh, Imagine, uh, but we got it up and running and doing some We did stuff with um, uh, EVS, and so what this allows things to do is when you do plug in a new IO box, it sees it, right? It recognizes right. it right away, and then you can you can then put the audio in it, be off and running. So, we're at beginning days, but it does work. It is happening, but it's a four-letter word for some people, but, but it's, <laughs> it's. it's, I think it's going to get there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, in summary, right? So it's a native twenty-one ten dash thirty console. The big thing is it scales, right? You can have the DSP be small, twenty channels go up to one twenty. You can uh, not have a surface or add individual panels and in scale, and then the I/O can scale, right? You can use IO or other devices uh, like Sure or uh, maybe in ClearCom where they uh, have 2110 um, capabilities. Or yeah,
0: yeah, format. absolutely. And you have you have one of these running in LA? Is that what you said?
8: Yes. So let me uh, let me bounce over to it. Are you guys seeing that now?
0: Uh, we still we still see the uh, uh, the the, the um, deck.
8: Oh, I got a thumbs up on one. Um, Let me do this real quick.
0: Uh, You may want to stop screen sharing, then screen share again. Yeah,
8: let me do that. Go to, here we go.
0: Yep, we see it now.
8: Okay, cool. Apologize for that. So um, in San Francisco, VPN in LA, it's only like a 22 millisecond connection I have. And this is just standard stuff, right? Uh, so in LA, I move this fader. That fader panel f- is physically moving, right? So, but this is your traditional kind of gooey look, right? These are all my faders. I can have 120 of these guys, right? Um, I got nice metering right next to my channel and just kind of rolling through a normal audio mixing console. I can hit access. It brings that channel in the focus. And then when I go to processing, I can start doing things. I can change the mic pre. I can go to the EQ and adjust the EQ. I can, remember, I'm i in San Francisco, right? Doing it right. all for the production down in LA. I can go to my compressor, make all my changes. Um, I have an auto mix, which is like the Dan Dugan. Uh, I can put as many channels as I want into an auto mix and I have two of those.
0: Uh, I have and that. how many channels for, per auto mix?
8: As many as you have. So oh, wow. Okay. yeah, so if you had 120 mixer, you can put 120. Kind of right. crazy. Wouldn't right? would work but.
0: very well, but but, but <laughs>
8: right.
0: you could do it. You could. Do but
8: it. you know, normally you got five to eight, right. right, for the moderators or the people around the stage. One of the big advantages, as you guys know, with the auto mix is that it reduces a lot of the the studio noise. Yeah. But you still have the air and the energy of the studio, right? It yep. doesn't. It's like a gate where it just cuts it off. Um.
0: Big and this does do five one.
8: It does five one the stereo, this mono, mm-hmm. we have delay. And what this is mainly used for is like when graphics come in, they come in slow. So now it's audio's problem. So we have to delay things. So we have 5.4 seconds of delay on every channel. It's a long delay. Yeah. Well, you can even add more. Right. So I think one of the biggest things you probably see like on the uh, PGA tour, you know, this is, they're always off at the delays. You, you hear the crack of the ball. On the club, but then three seconds later you hear it. They're always being challenged because of those trackers, right? They they put in a lot of um, delay, and the audio guys always always chasing it. Right. But this is how they would solve that problem. Um, so this is the you know basically this processing page is on every single channel. So we don't shortchange any channels. So if you had just a twenty DSP mixer, you got all twenty. If you have one hundred twenty, you have all one hundred twenty. Right. And then, um, again, I need to route the channel. I just go to routing, and, you know, here's layer one, fader one. I called it A1. If I roll over, I can see A2. I can see A3. This guy's name is Bill. It's really hard to see. But if I need to send Bill to the web or group one, this is all I need to do. And uh, Mix-7 wants to hear Bill. You know, I click it. I go to the aux sends and IFB 1 2 and 3 all want to hear bill but uh IFB 4 doesn't but IFB 5 does again i can do this all remotely the advantage here is you could have a mixer on site but maybe they've done something wrong or they can't figure something out yeah because you you can you know jump into the 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 same network as a type r and,
0: and that's one sure. of the big things we have you know some a handful of people that we, that we work with that are truly know everything inside and out, but we can't necessarily put them at every location or especially if you're doing a lot of rooms, you can't do necessarily, you know, if we're doing a bunch of different venues all at the same time, you're not going to have, you can't find, I mean, it's difficult to find someone that really knows it all in and out for every single location, but there's plenty of people that can do it well. They just can't get with, they get stuck is when you need to have somebody unstick them.
8: (laughs) Right. And the nice thing is (laughs) the engineer doesn't have to run across the building. Yeah. Right. They could be in the room or they might even be at home.
0: Right. And we've done this. I mean, we, we do this with other consoles. It's just that a lot of them are, it's a little bit of a kludge, you know, like it's, it's, you know, it's not really like the mixer wasn't built to do it this way. It's kind of like someone figured out how to put software on top to make it kind of work.
8: Right. I think that that's the advantage Calware had because that's all we do is mixing consoles is when we built this console that it had, all your traditionals of how to perfect example is patching, right? If I needed to patch a microphone, right? I'm going to go to my IO patching. Remember we're in audio over IP land. So we have transmitters and receivers. I go to my receivers. I look for my combo box. I can see my mic number four. This might be in the studio, right? For the anchor. And then I want to put it onto the type R. So it's a destination. I go to desk inputs. I have two inputs per channel. It could be my main and backup microphone. This is just my main microphone. And I go, I want mic four to patch to Charlie and I hit connect. and I'm done. I've just tap- patched the microphone. right? So I can go over here to to um, the processing page and then you know find Charlie. Here's Charlie. and now I can adjust the mic for Charlie. I can adjust the EQ for Charlie. I can go to routing. And say, oh, Charlie shouldn't be on IFB 1 and 2, and but Charlie needs to go to main 1 and groups 5 and 6. Again, in, you know, pretty simple stuff, and this is all on a GUI. It's even easier when you're in a surface. And then even on the output, so we got the signal into the console. How do we get it out? So, again, really simple. We go to I.O. patching, desk outs. It lays it out. What do you want to patch out? The mains, the auxes, the directs, the mix minuses, control room monitors. Let's say we want to patch um, the main outs. So we select main out. Maybe we need to patch the web. So we just select stereo left, right. And then what format, what output card are we sending it to uh, to get to the web? We can go to transmitters just to make this one super simple. I'll go to the local. Uh, outputs on the back of the core. Remember, there's eight analog right. outs. And here I can say use out seven and eight. So on the D sub, it might break out to two XLRs or eight XLRs. You take seven and eight. And then boom, you connect that. And now I've just connected to the web. So in that really less than two minutes, I've brought a microphone onto the console. I've made adjustments. I made the routes and I've sent it off to the web. That's great. And and then I can go to my meters, right? And I have a whole meter page and I got four rows of meters and I can put this on a separate TFT and always look at my meters and everything's color coordinated. Red are always my meters. Right.
0: Cause so these pages right now, you're, sl- you're, you're collecting these, but these are all just web pages. So if you exactly. want to have five monitors and throw a bunch of these up on the, on the monitors, it's, it can be spread out.
8: You got it, Alex, you got yeah. it. Yeah. And, and, and so you can see, um, you know, there's a lot going on here, but, you know, you you drill down, you need that information. So I can see Charlie's and Oliver's levels.
0: Well, and here. again, it also means that you can have more than one person logged into it. And oh, yeah. people seeing the, each person, you can have four different people with different responsibilities tied into the mixer with right. just the, with these, with these separate IP, you know, with this, with the page that they need.
8: And here's a good example too. If you're doing remote production, you can have the A2 on site right. and have availability to do all this. And just as important, or if not more, the A1 is offsite, but right. they can deal with the patching. They can deal with the details, right. but they might need the A2 to move the microphone or to yep. you know, do whatever. Absolutely.
0: Are you able to lock pages where you can share only the pages that only certain pages to a given person?
8: No, but what we do have is the ability to lock functions, so right. you can log in as the engineer or log in as the mixer. Right. And if you log in as the engineer, uh, you can then choose the uh, the mixer can't route or can't patch. Right. Maybe this is the weekend crew. And you go, hey, do not patch the output. They're set. Right. Right. So you do have that kind of feature.
0: We have a ton of questions starting to stack up. So we'll take a little break here and we'll jump into those. Let's go to the first question.
1: And first in from Jeff Keithley, who's the chief problem solver at Bazazz. As someone that runs multiple OB trucks, it's great to see Calrec here. How many smaller trucks are using Type R or do they go the Brio route?
8: Yeah. Um, so really Brio's still holding down the fort there because going to audio over IP is a whole change, right, of the truck, of your audio workflows. Um, but that ship has sailed, right? We're starting to see more and more people embrace audio over IP just moving forward. So we don't have really any type R's in trucks. We have them in fly packs and in in installs.
0: Next question. Douglas
1: Carmichael asking, could the type R be used for remote production in a music or theater context, not just broadcast?
8: Uh, it could, but you're not in the room to hear it, right? So you're going to be... <laughs> But if you're oh, doing the web, for instance,
0: you might, you might, so one thing that we get into that's pretty common is that there may be a, a full desk, a, you know, a Digico or, or some right. kind of CL5 or, or something right. else that's sitting there running the, running the show that's there, but we have to do the web broadcast or the, or the, oh, okay. Or, so you'd be taking their feeds and potentially. So you get a
8: split feed of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what it's designed to do for sure. Yeah. You know, it's exactly that. So. Again, that's a real advantage, right? Because you can have your own separate mix, and you can be doing it from a remote location.
1: Absolutely. Next question. Jeff Keithley's back with a question. What about NDI audio?
8: Ah, so that's the cloud audio uh, formats that are starting to handle. So we are in development of actually a cloud engine. Um, so our parent company is Audio Tonics. And so we will be having that probably available available in 2024 and it will run on AWS or Azure or
0: so this would be the mix the whole mixer would
8: be the whole right mixer in. will live up there but here's a really important note that I think everyone overlooks in order to handle ifB latency you have to have DSP at the event if you're doing cloud you're still sending it up and down you're still going to need some type of dsp mixer like a type r in order to handle the ifb so there's no latency so you're going to be working with this with a cloud right
0: of course of course. for a lot of us like like this show there is no back down <laughs> like it just goes up and mixes yeah. in the in the cloud as well but i think that um but I, I, I definitely for things that have to interact with that and i i do think that we um a lot of times we work on things that are their physical, there's like two or three physical locations that we're then tying together, um, you know, to make, make all of those work. And you could theoretically with this have a couple of web pages that are the cloud mix and a couple of web pages that are the local control right. over a type bar.
8: Right. On-prem, off-prem, you know, all this stuff. Yeah, um, It's pretty interesting because a lot of people are wanting, because video is kind of the way that their workflows, it's a little bit easier and it works better in a cloud coming out of the gate. Audio is more complex. There's just a lot more things moving around. It's
0: been one of the things that's been the hardest thing uh, w- where we don't feel like that has been truly solved in the cloud is really right. having a great, a great solution in the cloud to do high level mixing, you know, with lots and lots of channels and right. very
8: complex routing. And kind of opening up a little bit of our stuff because we do major broadcast right now. I think there's some out there um, with oh man, I'm forgetting uh, the company name, but they have like 32 channels, you know. Mm-hmm. Um Ours that we've done already, proof of concept, with is 256 channels. Right. So Mixbus, I think, bigger, is the one that we've seen show up a yeah. lot
0: in yeah. those in those areas from Harrison. Yeah. Next next question.
1: Dave Kaufman from Vancouver, British Columbia, with blurring between broadcast and live streaming. What would you consider the entry level with a Type R to get started? Uh,
8: so the Type R can be just the core, right? So that has I/O on it, right? analog eight mic line in and out for AES mouse. But remember, the type R core, I don't think I mentioned this, it's a 512 squared router, right? So you can get that many ins and out of the type R. And if it's a 2110 native device you're connecting to you don't need any IO, right, you're connecting that devices uh, 2110 format into it. So you can start as small as that, you know, just a core.
0: Next question.
1: Jeff Francis in Columbia, South Carolina. What is the largest mixed bus monitor setup for surround immersive 5.1, 7.14, et cetera?
8: Yeah, so the type R stops at 5.1, okay? And then you have three discrete 5.1 main outputs. Our other product called the Impulse, this is massive, right? It does over 4,000, I should say 2300 DSP channels but it does close to 500 buses. And this is doing the 7.14, the 5.14, the 7.12. We were um, at the U.S. Open for the tennis uh, in September in New York and we did a thing with Dolby where we brought out our new Argo console with the impulse core. And we had a whole Dolby immersive Atmos setup. Uh, and, And it was cool, we had our separate room. We weren't going live to any of it um, but it allowed all the mixers cause it's like nine consoles on the site there. So the A1s would come on during their break or before they started their, their gig and they would play around with it and they would see like this immersive bus setting and how we would do it. So the impulse is really, if you're going to do immersive, you have to do the impulse, but we give you hundreds and hundreds of buses.
1: Next question. Jeff Keithley asking, is the software on the type R more or less like the same thing that Solid State Logic and CalRIC are putting in the cloud?
8: I don't know yet because I haven't seen it. So uh, I'm guessing it's going to be very close. Basically, they're going to skin it, right? So Audiotonics makes the engine, the DSP, and then the user interface or the skin is gonna be CalREC forward-facing that people are used to and SSL forward-facing that SSLs used to. And um, I know the DSP packs are gonna be very similar. Next question.
1: Jeff Francis in Columbia, South Carolina asking, how is the remote control secured to prevent nefarious individuals from accessing your mixer?
8: Well, that's up to the client, right? We just provide the application uh, how they want to connect VPN or firewalls, you know, we just write on them. So um, we yeah, have a lot the, of. What we're
0: looking at here is a 10 dot. So it's it's an internal network. So you're just protecting the, right. the network itself. If you, if you don't put it on the outside internet, you're. Right. Next question.
1: And Courtney Gooden from Hollywood, California, and right here on our panel. Um, does the GUI browser interface have a minimum resolution or aspect ratio needed to function?
8: Uh, I think it's going to play out what your laptop or computer is. So you, you're going to want at least a 1024 768 um, but uh, it can go up to, I think, a, a 4K resolution. Good and of course you do that, you can put more things and see more things, right?
5: Yeah, and God forbid if somebody has to access it, like the, the, the guru is out somewhere and only has his phone with him, could it be accessed with a phone browser? <laughs>
8: Yeah, I mean, remember, it's browser-based, right? So yeah. fire-up Safari. But I mean, if Safari.
5: he's in a vertical in portrait mode, it, right. it'll right. adapt, the layout will adapt to the portrait mode.
8: Right. Okay. Yeah, it's right. kind of scary what you can actually start doing because it's browser-based.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Next question. Jeff Francis, Columbia, South Carolina. What sample rates does the console support? 44.1,
8: 48, 88.2, 48,
1: uh, and 96. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, "Cost-effective, Sympti twenty-one ten compliant IP backbone. What does that mean?
8: <laughs> yeah, the switches, right? So we don't s- supply the switches. Those are going to be like a Cisco or Arista or Artel or whoever. Um, but they need to be boundary clock." Um, switches these are expensive switches but the the point there i guess we're trying to make from a marketing point of view is if video if you already have an infrastructure that has video ip happening then the uh, the this is the advantage of 2110 right the dash 20 is uh, already there so the dash 30 you just plug it into the existing network so there's no additional um uh, hardware needed but if you don't have an ip infrastructure you do have to start building one
3: Next question.
1: Douglas Carmichael is in for the question. For a smaller, lower-budget deployment uh, that may not be able to afford a full ST-2110 infrastructure, could the Type R be deployed with pure Dante?
8: Uh, no. But there are a couple solutions, um, really three of them. Um, that modular frame box that I would mentioned before, right, you can put a Dante card in there, and then that connects to the Dante network, and you're off and running. Well, we have a, a number two, a lot of clients um, use a focus right that does uh, Dante to AES3. And so because there's AES3 on the type R, you can connect to it, and then it connects via Dante, and that's kind of your connection back and forth. The third one is Dante Domain Manager, though I don't recommend that, um, because <laughs> that's that's that gets deep and tricky.
1: Next question. Uh, Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas. Uh, what is the CalREC certified training, and what does it cost, and what does it include?
8: Uh, the certified training is free. Um, there's, I guess, a couple different versions. Is on the web, you can take courses, um, IP network courses, or Type R or Brio operational courses. And then, um, if you want to take it to the next level, in LA, New York, we have our our demo gear with our tax and you go under the hood. And again, these are free because they, we want everyone to know as much as possible. So when they're on site, they can fix it without necessarily having to call us. So we encourage that tremendously and try to support that. But it's really out of the New York, LA offices that we offer it. And I think right now it's just the LA office that's really offering it.
1: Next question. Douglas Carmichael, how do you sell the Type R against other mix engine solutions in the Audio Tonics stable, like the Allen and Heath D Live DMO?
8: Right. So it's kind of interesting being uh, within the Audio Tonics family because we have all these mixing consoles. But everyone is kind of in their own lane, right? Their own stovepipe that does things well. Like Digico does live very well, uh, SSL does a lot of studio uh, work and some live very well. Uh, CalREC, nothing but broadcast. Alan Heath, um, you know, they're from a $500 to a $15,000 console. So we really don't bump into them too much. But the Type R can really kind of come close to it. And then it just depends what works best for the client. You know, I'm with CalREC, so I would do exactly what I just did with the demo of the Type R and just kind of go over it, go over your needs and requirements. Um, I think it's a big thing that CalRec brings is that it's our support, right? Because of the clientele we have, you know, you have to be on air. So we have six texts, you get all their uh, cell phone numbers. Um, it's not a phone tree or anything. Because it's web served, um, we can get right on there and be able to do what we need to do. So that's really the separator uh, on a lot of this stuff is the support side. And again, functionality just depends on that Allen and Heath versus the type R see which one really works best for your application. Sometimes the Type R isn't required. But um, if you need multiple mixers, the Type R is going to give you that where the Allen & Heath doesn't.
1: Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, asking, Can you discuss Supersport's new 4K UHD IP native OB truck? IP1 in South Africa is kitted out with the latest and advanced broadcasting technologies including CalRex 64 fader Artemis Plus audio mixing console with CalRex Impulse audio processing.
8: So I just know that one from the marketing we have out there, but basically right. what that's saying is um, the Artemis and the Apollo, which are um, are consoles that use Hydra 2 or Impulse, which is audio over IP. And then we just call it Uh, Artemis plus. So that I know is running with the impulse core. And basically, as I said, it is just a larger version of type R. It just has hundreds, if not thousands of DSP channels. Its router is 8,000 plus squared. Um, So it really performs the same way as the type R. It just has a lot more IO in and out and a lot more DSP processing. But it just uses the Artemis surface uh, as opposed to Uh, the type R surface. But because the impulse supports CalRIC Assist, which is the web-served application, you can do what we're seeing on the screen right now with it. You know, you can go in there from a remote location on the Artemis and be able to change the patches and everything. And this is pretty cool because the Artemis was developed 12 years ago. It's been out there that long. And we've just been able to bolt on an audio over IP backend. And within that, we've also done the CalRIC Assist web-served application. So it really keeps a lot of people that like those surfaces and they don't want to move away from them um, to stay current, you know, with audio over IP and being a- able to have a remote production or web served uh, product to work within it.
0: And can you take us back to the processing um, panel there? Yeah. Okay. So this is, and and so this is all the sub panels here for, and this is per channel. Um, and so per you,
8: channel. Right. Right, so I can see I'm on later one, fader five. I know it's hard for you guys to see, but this is the name. This is the equivalent, if I go into the faders page mm-hmm. and I can hit access, it brings Oliver into focus, right? You can see the blue line around it. And then this also, you know, it changed. I got the left, right arrows performing the same task. As so here.
0: now if you're selected there and then you go into processing, it's gonna assume that that's the one you're
8: in. You, you got it. I got it. So now Oliver, I can change Oliver's EQ. Screen. It's
0: fantastic. Rob, thank you so much for your time.
8: Yeah, no, I appreciate it all. Thanks again for the opportunity.
0: Sorry yeah, have a little
8: hiccup in the beginning there, but.
0: Because. Not at all. No, it's, it's all good. It's all, it all worked great. And, and, you know, really excited to, you know, we, we, um, a lot, again, a lot of us are, a lot of folks are using smaller mixers. And I think it's really important that we, we start to think about that. I'm, we're really excited. We're going to hope, hopefully bring you back when you have the cloud, um, mixing solution, uh, up and running, you know, and ready to do, you, do you, do you have a target time
8: for that? Oh boy. 2024.
0: Sometime in 2024. December, sometime before the thirty first of December. Yeah, so maybe in yeah. a year, a year or so, we'll get you back. It might be you
8: know, earlier. It might be earlier, but you know, we all know the engineers don't know um, because as they build it, they realize, oh, we have to solve these problems as they're building it, and then it just kind yeah. of pushes things out.
0: Well, it's it's really needed. I think that we still. I think that the the, the a, a really solid cloud interface with lots and lots of channels and all the things that we tend to need is something that that's very very needed so it'll be really interesting to see what the solution looks like
8: absolutely but i don't want to you know don't forget if you're doing ifbs you still need you know a a dsp mixer on site you know that's not going to go away just because of physics
0: absolutely absolutely Thank you so much to the uh, panelists for all the, uh, for all your input on both the uh, first hour and the second hour. Thanks to the producers who asked all the great questions that kept us going for the first hour and the second hour. And thanks to the incredible team on the back end that, uh, that does the design, that, that preps everybody, that manages the process, that um, builds the code that ties this all together. Um, and then also the folks that run it every single day, seven days a week. We really appreciate everybody's contribution. Uh, We we, uh, traveled 81,000 miles today, 131,000 kilometers, and that all lines up to 649 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours.